Well, uh, you probably have tracked along, and I'm sure many of you are aware that we're up at chapter 12, the book of Revelation. I've went through on Sunday a couple times, I've given a little more background um, to the particular place we're at in this letter. I do that frequently because um, it's just kind of a challenging book sometimes to get your head in the game, so to speak. You, know, you hear it one week and you kind of mill it over and chew on it a little bit throughout the week and life unfolds and things go on and, and then Sunday morning we're in another chapter and, and you're like, wait a minute, what, what is this again? And not that anybody's ever had that kind of work through your head. Like, wait, I got to get my brain reset a little bit, you know? And so just by quick reference, not review, but where we're at there in chapter 10 is we've been seeing this chronology or this unfolding, this, you know, um, I guess just kind of a step-by-step expression that God has warned humanity that he has a way to do things. And humanity said, we'll do it our own way and we're going to go about it that way. To the point where people were even defiant to the degree they wouldn't receive from God. And he says, you know, that mindset, that rebellion comes with a curse, if you would, a consequence that you'll be separated from me and you'll receive what you required. You'll receive life without me. Well, we, that's what was kind of happening. And then, you know, the judgment was being poured out. We see from chapter six through chapter nine, that is incremental judgment coming from the seal judgments leading up to the trumpet later in the book we'll see it's the the vial or the bowl judgments that'll be poured out on a christ rejecting world in chapter 10 it's like he's describing things up through nine and then says oh and then there's this it's kind of like where a lot of stories go you know sometimes we think of them like a rabbit trail because well sometimes it is a rabbit trail but it's just like okay so there's this and then in chapter 11, we're re, you know, as we've seen, okay, the, these two guys were on the scene. And now here in chapter 12, we're going to read about a great sign. There's other things that are unfolding. So if you can keep your mind wrapped around, John was in exile on the island of Patmos, literally imprisoned for what he believed. Jesus met him there. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he kind of quite honestly, took him in a time machine mentality, so to speak, experience, where he just took him forward in time, which is what we're reading about. And so now as he's there, he's describing what he's seen, and that's what we have here in chapter 12. So chapter 12, I want to read uh, the first six verses, and then we'll, we'll look at those, and then we'll go back and uh, catch the next portion uh, in the chapter. Beginning in verse 1 of Revelation, chapter 12, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head on a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. So let's uh, start into this. I'm going to attempt to exercise restraint. (laughs) 
and not go off on all the possibilities and maybe even some of the probabilities of the signs and the different things. I, I found it helpful to just let the text tell you what's taking place. And then from there, you can draw a connection to some similarities in Scripture. But you've heard me say before, let's not be definitive where God has not been definitive. What it simply says is what we simply want to see and then ruminate, chew on that thing. Hmm, that's very interesting. You notice it begins there with verse 1, a sign. You know, a sign, if you, th- you can understand it, it, it reveals information, right? It, 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 uh, give you a, it'll give you a direction on the highways. It'll tell you that they're, you know, warning, you know, there's turn ahead or however it may be. It uh, tells you of what's to come. And it also conveys, you know, something that you maybe are unaware of. So this sign, you know, here is, is what, that's what's being conveyed, and it, that there's something else to be aware of. And of course, you know, John, as he's sorting this out, you know, God, God is unveiling uh, past and future events, and he's kind of processing this. And I, I would lo- love to see a facial expression of John every so often. Some, some type of a you know, snapshot or some type of glimpse of how he's like, because you, know, you had to be spinning to some degree. I mean, just soaking all this in because here's this, this imagery now, this symbolism, this, this sign of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head on the gar- garland of 12 stars. You know, many draw to this, and I think rightfully so, draw to Genesis 27. Remember Joseph, he had a dream, and he spoke of how he would be, you know, his, his family would bow down to him. And if we go back and you look at that in Genesis 37, you'll see with a dream where his, his father, mother's brothers bowed down to him, speaking of how God would preserve the nation that would be called Israel. So it's really interesting because there's some similarities, of course, when it's speaking of, you know, the, the 12 stars, the sun, and the moon, when you tie that together with his particular dream, pretty fascinating um, the context we have here in Revelation 12 confirms that the woman spoke of is Israel. There's been a lot of organizations, and um, I say organizations because they call themselves churches, but they're just really organizations of men in many cases. Um, there's some that have claimed their, their leader or their person is this woman, and I think we're going to be able to walk through and see why it's, it's confirmed that it, this is, is Israel. This woman being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. You know, the nation Israel, prior to Jesus' birth, they were longing for the Messiah, correct? They were often, they were just, they were aching. There's a reason that, was, that in a contemporary sense for them that they were really crying out. Roman oppression. There was a government system over the top of them. And, of course, that created hardship and taxation and other things. And so they just really were looking forward. And they also had history. And so as they're wading through and weaving through the Old Testament and seeing how things have been, and they're looking for this, uh, this prophet that Moses spoke about, this Messiah that Isaiah was, had revealed. They're like, when will this come? And they're, they're literally, you know, like I say, kind of longing for this appearance. It says that this woman, Israel, being with child, verse 5 tells us who that child was. She bore a male child. So I think when we get to there, you can see we can see that's clearly speaking of Jesus. In verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, 
Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. This dragon, Satan, as we'll see as we read through this particular chapter, we'll get more details. Seven heads, ten horns, representing power and authority. The diadem, the word for crown there, is not the finisher's crown of an athletic competition where um, those who finished, they, they received a, uh, a crown made of, of like vine and leaves and stuff. Well, well, that didn't represent authority, nor did it even similar, represent longevity. It was just a simple thing. It was actually pretty common. But the word used here speaks of a crown of authority, a crown um, that would, would go on. And so many believe that this description we have here it's also, we'll see it again in um, chapter 13, verse 1, um, in Daniel 7. Speaks of this one world government the Antichrist will establish and rule over. And perhaps, I think it will be, well, who knows about the revived Roman Empire. It'll certainly be a confederacy of ten nations. Have you heard the, the, those portions and passages? It'll be the ten, confederacy of ten nations and other leaders. And so many believe that his configuration and the various heads and authority and the diadems, the crowns, convey to us um, that he, this is, this is the, the, the enemy who has some measure of authority here on this earth in this time. We're told in verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. When Satan rebelled against God, he had a third of, his, a third of the angels in heaven join him. And together they were cast from God's immediate presence, booted out of heaven. But we're going to see here as we go through the study they weren't blocked from heaven. Satan will still be, he still resides in heaven, not resides, but at least has the ability to what we know to be the accuser of the brethren, daily going before God, accusing the brethren. But that, we'll see here in chapter 12, verse 9, a few things. What we see in here, though, as you look at this, and we, we catch this similarity and see what these signs are directing us to, in verse 4, I think we can see easily that Maybe we can remember, we won't see it from this text, but we can realize from this expression, Satan hates God. And everything, that, everything, everything on this created realm, in this world, that reminds Satan of God, he hates that too. Jesus said this about Satan. His desire is to steal, to kill, and destroy he said, I have come that you may have life in that more abundantly. But the, the enemy of your soul, the adversary, he, he, he has one thing in mind. To steal, to kill and destroy, to bring destruction. And he has always been a thief and a deceiver. You know, Satan has been accusing and lying and hurting people ever since man was created in the Garden of Eden. Agreed? What happened in the Garden of Eden? The Bible tells us that, that Satan deceived Adam and Eve and brought death to humanity. There was no death in the world until man rebelled from God. With, from God. Then we're told that death entered the world. So he literally brought it in, Satan did, in his deception. What's one of the first, well, I would say the first significant event in a family relational sense that took place outside of the Garden of Eden? 
Cain killed Abel. So it's happening relationally, initially. It resulted in death to humanity. Outside of the Garden of Eden, now death continues. Cain gets mad and kills Abel. And we see it going on and on. Some have said, well, why did God kick mankind out of the garden? He created it. Why couldn't he have created it with such a framework that they would never get evicted? Well, it's an interesting question if you're just living on this level, this horizontal plane. But we want to stop for a minute and go, well, we live on a horizontal plane, so we have all our reference here unless we choose to have a, a, you know, this type of vertical reference. And if we believe that God created humanity and we agree that everything he created was good and he even saw it and says, nah, not bad. Why isn't creation said great? You know what I mean? I've, I've, I don't know, it's just a weird thought that I've chewed on for a long time. It, it's just good. It's good. I, I go dirt bike riding and I can describe the event as great. But creation is just good. I don't know. I just think it's the understatement of all eternity that God creates this planet in color with phenomenal observation, amazing experience in this atmosphere, even in the fallen world. Because really, the logic that says, well, why do you do it that way should expect it to be in grayscale. Really, you shouldn't have color because it's a fallen world. It's dark. It's just dark and light. So don't bring color into it. Just let color be in heaven and then you look forward to heaven and you won't want to hang out here. I mean, it's the same logic. Let me go back to the question, well, why did God do that? Well, first of all, he is God and you are not. And that's really important. And not in any way to like break communication, but actually to establish healthy communication. It's like, God, I don't, I don't understand. You know, Isaiah was exhorted, strongly encouraged by God. Come now, let us reason together, you and I, thus saith the Lord. So there is a reasoning, but reasoning is always related to the relationship. So engaging, it's like, God, I don't, I, don't, I don't really get it. It seems to me in my little brain that this would have worked better. But then he says to you, says to me, it's like, well, what would love look like if there was no choice? If he just said to you and me, love one another, you don't have a choice. You don't even get to pick which one. I'm just going to make you all love each other. It really wouldn't work, right? I mean, it really it was outside the description of the relationship and, and what it would mean to love someone. Love requires at least a measure, an element of free will. We have to be able to make a choice to be able to exercise that choice. And quite honestly, not to go off on a tangent, but to really understand good... Evil amplifies your knowledge of good. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's required to have evil to know good, but I think we all understand through our life experiences, we appreciate certain things, the pleasant things, when we go through the pain of other things. It's just, a, it's, it's just deductive reasoning to some degree. It's measured with emotion and heartache. When God created humanity, when he created Adam and Eve, he created a fascinating relationship. That he would walk with them in the cool of the evening, that he would dwell with them and have it and be around them. And they knew it. And he would engage with them and give them responsibilities and opportunities to kind of manage the garden and name the animals. You know what I mean? It just kind of sounds like a pretty chill place, really. But he also said, 
don't touch this tree. Uh, what do you mean by touch? What does touch mean? You know, that's just a typical brain of humanity because, it's like, okay, but there was a, okay, there seemed to be a curiosity, but no coercion. But then this deceiver comes along. Well, it's not exactly what he said. Has God not said? And then next thing you know, we know how it happens and how it unfolds. So I look at that question and think, well, I think it's required that we would have the ability to choose one or the other. Now, if we have the ability to choose one another, but wisdom is withheld, that gets weird. But wisdom was imparted in the initial conversation when the instruction was given. So it's like, here's what's going to happen. This is how it would be. And, and don't, you know, from the, if you rebel, from the moment you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay. I don't know if he had to explain what death was, because it's not present in the garden. But we know he is God, and we are not. The truth of it is, God has allowed a deceiver, a killer, a destroyer, one who's a slanderer. He's allowed him to be present in this planet, on this planet. He was present in the Garden of Eden. He was present, I believe, before the foundation, of, but before the forming of this world, before the creating of mankind. A lot of people get into discussion, get into these things, and I just think, okay, he, Satan was present. I believe that even that fall took place some time ago. We'll get into it, but let me move through so I don't go off too far. Out of the context of the verse we're looking at here in verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. Satan sought to prevent the birth of Jesus and later sought to kill him as an infant, correct? He, the decree went out from Herod to kill all the male babies in the vicinity of Bethlehem. So there, there, he, he's like, what, well, why would a ruler choose to do that? Obviously, we could deduce logically, well, he doesn't want somebody else taking his throne or know taking him out but i think we can also see there's a there's a a source that's bringing about this consistency that this desire to kill infants or this desire to to you know bring death is is sourced in satan himself and we overlook it sometimes i think because quite honestly we're a little bit immune to that observation because there's so much death around us death is so common and so frequent but Satan, that's his desire. He, he came in and, you know, so his, we know the story with Herod. We know the weeping and the wailing and how that associated with Rachel and the fulfillment of a passage out of the Old Testament. But we also know he came to devour her child as soon as it was born. We know this child to be Jesus. Then it goes on in verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So we just covered in that verse, we just covered the entire um, incarnation, if you would, from birth to departure of Jesus in that verse. Let's just check this out. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations. And he will be. He will rule all the nations. That's, that's future, if you would. We're, we're seeing all this unfold in the book of Revelation. And we're seeing it. Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, a messianic psalm, prophetically speaking, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. A rod of iron indicated power and authority, and I like that association out of Psalm 2, verse 9, because 
When you take a rod of iron to a clay pot, who wins? Not much of a competition, right? I mean, it literally, that's the imagery that it's drawing from. You know, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. He will rule over. And so what we're reading about here as we're wander, working our way through the, this, this book of Revelation is the things that God in his authority is going to dash to pieces, these various things that man has established as their strengths, as their hope. Whether it's money, whether it's position, whether it's power, it's all coming apart from Revelation 6 on. It's all being just, just, just smashed even though the people won't repent and won't, won't agree with that, what God's doing. Jesus resisted the tactics of Satan, conquered death and hell, and ascended into heaven. And we see that just in this passage. He, is, he was caught up to God and his throne. And we know he's the one that spoke to John in Revelation chapter 1, and the one that is, is on the scene even through this, this journey, through these chapters in Revelation Going on and moving on now to verse 6, the woman, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. The woman, Israel. You remember what's going to happen? The chronology, the unfolding will be the church, his bride, who was not appointed for wrath, and the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out beginning we see in chapter 6. So the church will be snatched away, brought up, taken out, prior to the wrath being poured out, prior to the tribulation starting. We're told that the the Israel will make this agreement, this arrangement, this covenant with the Antichrist. Because I think the most obvious, it would seem, scenario for those who are on this planet after all the Christians are removed, there's a bit of chaos. It would usher in a lot of calamity. And when that event takes place, there'll be a person who will come onto the scene and he'll seem to have the power, the influence, the charisma. Later, we're going to see in this book that he even seems to overcome a mortal wound. And he'll have this influence. And so he makes this arrangement, this covenant with Israel for seven years. And that, I believe, is what we're seeing right now. Israel, well, it's got to be referenced in here because it says, you know, they'll feed her 1,260 days, which on a 60 or 30-day calendar, which we're referencing and what they're using here, that's three and a half years. So something's going to happen halfway through the tribulation period to where this woman, Israel, will, as it says, will, will flee to a place prepared by God. We'll get into that here in a little while as we move into the next section. But at this point, you know, the Jews will flee Jerusalem at the halfway into the tribulation period. They'll be taken care of by God in a place that's prepared for them. Now, whether that's a physical description, some have chose or um, have looked geographically and, and historically to um, the city of Petra, the city of Rock, and seeing how thousands of people could could survive there if you know, God provided for him. But let's move into the next section. And it's going to continue. The story will continue and, and other things. But we will have a, as he's given the sign, he's going to tell us about something else beginning in verse 7. We'll go 7 through 12 on this sort section. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. 
but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So John speaks of a of a war that breaks out. And as I've mentioned, as we're reading through this book, we realize that, that many different events, past and future, are revealed. This war, that's the discussion, the debate. When did this war break out? When did it take place? Well, this one, I, I, I lean to be in future. Let me, as we walk through, I think you can, can see it. Um, Satan currently has access to God. We, we know even from the story of Job, right? We, we know different places. Um, he has access, and we're even told here that he's constantly accusing the brethren. But what we're also seeing is that he will be cast out. That, that access will be denied. Things will change. And so with that in mind, realize that God, Satan is not God's opposite. We have to make sure we assert that and hold on to that. He's not the opposite. Michael is closer to that as a created being. Michael, the archangel, we've read about him from Daniel. There's other places that refers to him. If you was going to see this battle taking place between created beings, it w- these are probably the two closest adversaries, if you, if you could see it that way. Um, I think this battle here takes place at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation as well because we see that Satan and his followers are permanently removed from heaven, there in verse 8, and cast to the earth. They didn't prevail. They didn't win. Um, The reason I draw the point that they're fighting against Michael, Michael as a very powerful angel, there's, a, there's this battle within the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6 tells us of somewhat of the order and a type of structure and authority that, you know, reminding you and I that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness that are in the heavenly places. You know, it's describing this and this and all of this, and, you know, we see some of the effects of it. But obviously, we, we don't see these things described, but we are literally experiencing the effects of it. So there's this intense battle going on. And now let's look in verse 9. The great dragon was cast out. See, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, Satan will be even more focused and aggressive. He's cast out. We see that as we come through these verses we've already read. Verse 10, notice what Satan was doing before this battle. Verse 10, we're told that he was the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night. He's been cast out. Satan is that source of accusation. 
Some accusation is a part of observation. And so you see someone do something and you can say you did that because of observation, right? Well, this is not how he functions. And you're seeing it amplified in the world today. The accusations of the enemy of Satan do not need any truth to them. Bold lies are readily received and eagerly believed right now. Bold lies. You, can, you see it in politics like crazy, and we're seeing it, you know, it's not always the best measure and hard to, to pull apart, but it's easier now. What's happening in politics, in the, you know, just the reality of it, is actually happening in the spiritual realm. It's like the same strategy is working in both places. I don't even know if you can actually separate the two. But among Christians in the church, you know, there's, there's, I know of a few different uh, leaders, different pastors, different ministry leaders that are experiencing bold lies spoken against them. And these things are readily received. There's an eager audience to hear some dirt on someone. They're readily received and eagerly believed. Instead of disproving or maybe considering or at least getting some facts, they're just readily received, eagerly believed, and promoted almost like with no restriction. And, and so you see that, and that's just the way of the enemy. He's constantly accusing the brethren. He accused you before God. That's what this text says. He's daily. Do you know what they did? Do you know what they did? I don't even know how it unfolds. I don't know how he's, you know, because he's not, you know, all-knowing. So, like, God's all-knowing. Satan's not. So I don't know where he's coming up with his list. Maybe his little minions got, you know, some type of group email. I don't know. He accuses you before God, and God says, Jesus took care of that. Jesus took care of that. Jesus has got that. At this point, we're reading about here, he finally says, shut it. <laughs> You're out. I'm done with you. But so he's constantly accusing you before God. He accuses you before man. That's why men, you know, we, we, we get into these divisions and arguments and all these foolish quarrels because there's actually a source that we don't always see. The source doesn't indwell you. You cannot, as a Christian, be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by a demon. The simple logic is God ain't sharing his house with anybody, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit when you're born again. So the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Demons, the spiritual realm I described, that we see the details to in Ephesians 6, they can influence you, but they don't indwell you. It's really important to know the difference. Because somebody influencing you is not the same as someone, some, some force that's indwelling you. And you know, some people prior to coming to Christ, where they had demonic spirits within them. But those were evicted when God took up residence. And it's really important because some teaching out there implies that God somehow shares the house. But with that, we see the source. Even though he's not indwelling, he's influencing people to be accusing one another. He accused you before man. And I think of that as outside the church, in the world, in, the, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. He's bringing accusation within the church. He doesn't care. You know, Satan actually can influence a Christian. Weird thought. He consistently does, actually. Even in gatherings, he has a way, uh, the, the spirit, the mind of this age can influence the way you think about someone. And the way. Now, don't pull the devil made me do it card. 
because that's the silliest thing I've ever... Well, I, I actually got along with him a long time ago, but then some things happened, and the devil just come between us. Like, go oh, give me a break. He's an influence. He doesn't, he, you're not shackled to him. You're not a puppy on a leash. You, you chose to embrace the accusation or the thought and the concept, and you chose not to love one another as God has loved you. And so you see what I'm saying? I, I've heard that before. Like, man, the devil just got in my head. It's like, trust me, you don't have room for two. <laughs> just don't let him be around, all right? He's not in your head. He's around you in that sense. And I, I don't know. It's just, I, I struggle with the communication of this because, like I say, I, I hear too much of, well, I just think the devil. It's just an easy way, isn't it? Isn't it easier just to say the devil did it? Oh, man, I was such under, under such demonic oppression. I was under such demonic influence. I just, I just didn't know what to do. Yes, you did. You just chose not to do it, and that made that heavier upon you. I think the simplicity is like, I want to identify that influence and then realize, hmm, is this of God? It's easy to say, no, you can tell. When it's, when it's demonic, it's a James wisdom that's earthly sensual, it's divisive, it's self-promoting. And if it's demonic, what are you going to do with it? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And you just, go, I, my question, I'm, maybe I'm too simple sometimes, but... I literally have this, this is kind of how it goes. I don't, have, I don't always have this position. Is this of God or of it's a demonic influence? <laughs> it's a no-brainer. So now I know what to do with it. I don't have to contemplate the theology and the thought. I don't have to memorize the verse. I don't have to you know, grab a verse and name it and scream it and yell it and bounce it around. I just have to get rid of it. I have to flee it. I have to get, no, I'm done with that. I'm going to go this direction. So that's my applicational encouragement because not only does he accuse you before God, accuse you before men in the world, he'll accuse and bring accusation within the body, but he'll accuse you to you. And that's one of the most devastating ones. He can accuse you and somehow have an influence that's outside of the word of God in the sense of practical, godly living. He can accuse you and he can say to you, you're not good enough. He, know, he's like, he doesn't know your thoughts, but he knows what you've done. And he knows your secrets that maybe only your spouse or somebody super close to you know. And he will, he will accuse you constantly. What are you, why would you do that? You, 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 I know what you said last night. I know what you did two weeks ago. I know how you thought of that person. He's an accuser of you. And I, I want to ask you, when that accusation, when that sense of like discouragement and weight and despondency comes, who's it coming from? It isn't from God, from God, I can guarantee you. So what are you going to do with it? You know, my wife, Kim, she's, she's gone for a couple weeks. And so if I don't take out the trash, high probability, if I don't take out the trash for two weeks, it stinks. So when he's accusing you and getting in your head, why do you let that trash just rot there? It just creates a, rat, a wretched environment. Take out the trash. It's not from God. Get rid of it and get back into the word. He's an accuser of the brethren. And so I mention it by application because it's happening right now. This event we're reading about has not happened yet. Satan is going to, you know, he's going to go really all out those last three and a half years, this text tells us, because he says that in, in verse 11, See, no, actually not a verse 11. I think we see it a little bit there in verse 10. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. 
He no longer can go. And then we've seen there at the very last verse, chapter of verse, of verse 12, because he knows he has a short time. I'll, I'll get to that here in a little bit. But he knows, you know, that it, it, it's coming to an end. Let's check out verse 11. And they overcame this influence, this adversary of their soul, Satan, the dragon. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Who overcame? Well, the text tells us that the lamb overcame because then those who were born again, redeemed by Jesus, by the blood of the lamb... They are the ones who were saved, literally, by his works. So in one sense, it's Christians of all ages. But the text leads us to, it's the tribulation saints. They are the ones that come to Christ during this tribulation period. And then they're severely oppressed and and persecuted because they represent God. Just like you represent God. You may feel you are not a very good representative, but everything about you is offensive to Satan. You're created in his image and likeness. So even before you're born again, you make him throw up. I mean, he is violently like, he hates you. That's just, you don't feel special. You're not doing some great spiritual work. He just hates you because you're created in the image and likeness of God. And so when you come to Christ, how much more? Now, here we're seeing there's a time where it's going to be really accelerated. But how did they overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. The same way you're saved in this generation, in this dispensation, in this time, is the same means by which man is saved in the tribulation period. The influence will be different from the godly sense. The Holy Spirit will influence differently. The 144,000 witnesses will be speaking. The two witnesses will be there. The work of the church as we know it now prior to the rapture is different, but the end result's still the same. So you see, by the blood of the Lamb, and notice this, by the word of their testimony, by the word of their testimony, they would then, that would be described as them telling of what Jesus has done for them. It's interesting when you see this and when it speaks of our testimony, it doesn't use the word doctrine. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is a, is a summary of what you believe and why you believe it, if you would, and maybe it's put into a shorter sentence you could explain. But it's really, you know, you, you don't, you're not asked to speak of the doctrine you embrace. It's to tell of what you know about the blood of the Lamb, about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the relational sense. That's why Peter, in the very last chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that's why his words of encouragement were not uh, doctrine, but rather relational, that you, I, we, would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. See, Peter's presenting a relational element that we would grow in relationship to him. And I I mention it because so often we slip into reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, talking about the Bible, but somehow many Christians become distant from Christ in their pursuit of Christian principles, in pursuit of Christian truth. They they find themselves distant from the very one who saved them, and they speak with such a uh, confidence 
in, 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 in the Greek or the Hebrew or however. You see what I'm saying? I, wanna, I think we should just be real. Hey, we're, we're, it's, it's the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, they just, I, I don't have all the answers. I can't tell you all these little Greek and, and Hebrew little ins and outs and nuances. I can tell you this. I was a wretch, and he saved me, and I didn't do anything to get saved. I simply accepted the grace, the unmerited favor he gave me, and I was saved because of what he's done for me. And because I believe that he is God and that he, 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 he will save me, I was born again, born of the Spirit. Amen. That's our testimony, to speak of the truth of Jesus Christ. The third thing we see how they overcame, they did not love their lives to death, or you could think of it as they didn't love their lives over death. In other words, they just like, you know what? <laughs> they put a gun to their head or whatever and said, listen, recant, denounce, deny the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you say. It's like, <laughs> with all due respect there, you know, Mr. Glock, I'm going to die someday anyway, and that day will come, and I am going to not, I will not deny the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the relationship I have with him. And I don't think, it, well, some of them maybe were defiant, but it's just a boldness. Like we see in Acts 5, where the, the Sanhedrin and the, the Jewish leaders, they perceive something very powerful about the early apostles and disciples. They knew that they were untrained and uneducated men, but, but they perceived that these men, these disciples, these apostles, had been with Jesus. That, that influence could clearly give him a boldness. And so I believe these same three things got to be in our mind. The blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony, and this place is not our home. I'm not going to love this life so much that I'll find myself running from the message, the gospel, the hope, so I can preserve this life for a few more hours or days or months or years, whatever it may be. But there, it's a different thing. Because... Satan's really torqued, and people are coming to Christ. People responded to the message, and I think they were dying. My perception or my opinion is that they're dying rather rapidly from the point of conversion to the point of challenge because it's going to be such a dark place for sure. So let's look on to verse 12. In verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Rejoice, O heavens. You know, many of the Psalms speak of creation expressing praise and worship. Isaiah 55, 12. Let me read the first portion. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Well, I've never seen a tree of the field clap its hands. I've seen the cool look, like in the aspen pocket, where they appear to be shimmering and waving. But you see what's being said. That even on this earth, there, God has created where there's this element of praise in all of creation. Jesus said when they told him to, hey, tell these guys to zip it, shut it up. I think it was Palm Sunday, wasn't it? Tell them to stop praising you and declaring you. Jesus said, even the rocks would cry out in worship and adoration if I told them to be quiet. 
And now think, that's, we're just referencing what we know. This is set in the heavenly realm. Rejoice, O heaven. I'm I, anxious to hear, see, and observe and hear what that's going to sound like. Woe to the inhabitants on the earth and the sea. Satan knows full well his time is short. And, and there's an element there that's, you know, think about it this way. It was with uh, the, the, uh, the, I would say it was the, uh, the pigs. Jesus was going to cast out the demons. And the demons said to him in Matthew eight twenty nine, Have you come to torment us before our time? So why would they say that if they didn't know that it was coming? Obviously, they knew that there was, there's, that the, things are going to come to head. The demonic realm understood that this isn't going to go on forever. They got it. Let's look at the last portion. We can cover it. Verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth... He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, which we know the woman. We've already established and looked at this text tells us that it was Israel. Jesus is the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for times, time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan's focus, his main attention is on Israel at this point. This is at the three-and-a-half-year point, moving through where it says times, time, and a half a time. Speaks also as another way of saying the three and a half years. But God intervenes and he thwarts Satan's efforts for these, these last three and a half years. In verse 15, um, I'm not sure I kind of process this how, actually how this is, you know, and what it, what it actually would look like. But the symbolism shows that Satan used natural resources to hurt or locate the Israelites. He's such a prideful duplicator. He tries to duplicate what God has done, but he doesn't have the power and the ability, but he has some influence. God judged the world with the flood, right? Satan tries to conquer God with the flood, but it doesn't flood. Kind of a problem when you don't actually control it. But if you pridefully think you can do everything. Verse 17, Satan directs his fury to the woman's offspring. Who are they? It says that, you know, the uh, offspring, well, we know there, well, there's the Jews, but I think this is speaking specifically of Christians. The reason I say that is Abraham, the father of our faith, was Jewish, Israelite. Abraham, the father of faith, was told in that powerful promise from God, the Abrahamic covenant, that he would be father of many nations. Not just one, of many nations. And so we also consider Romans 9, which speaks of Christians being children of the promise. Born again of the Israelite Messiah, Jesus, Christians in the tribulation period will have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the, how we can draw this conclusion and see, you know, they have the commandments of God. So, we could, well, that could be the Jews, but the testimony of Jesus Christ confirms that, that the dragon was enraged 
and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So basically those who come to Christ in the tribulation period will face some really intense stuff. It'll be a really intense time. If you're not yet a Christian, don't wait. <laughs> Seriously, it's just not worth the thought and theory. Hollywood is a liar. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be much more than you can imagine. If someone won't come to Christ at this age and this time, um, if they logically know, I mean, if that's their, they've deduced and decided, I'll wait until like year three and a half. When you have that cognitive capacity and ability and, and, and kind of distorted thinking, I don't think you'll come to Christ. Because when you deny him, when you know his love now, why would you respond to his wrath? It doesn't make sense. It's, almost, it's completely illogical. So if you have friends that are kind of embracing that or whatever, just gently, politely, but clearly reason with them. You know, because I've met a lot of people that's like, eh, I'll see what, we'll wait and see what happens. Wow. I was going to get on this bus and I looked at the thing up on top and it says off a cliff. So that's where it's going, but I'm just going to get on and see where it goes. No big deal. Who would do that? <laughs> Off a cliff. Is that near Twin Falls? Yeah, yeah. It's just before the Prime Bridge, actually. <laughs> Hard left. <laughs> it's like, who's going to get on that bus? But do you know many people are entrusting their, where they'll spend eternity with almost that much of reckless logic? And maybe it's because they really don't know the truth of the gospel. Maybe they've been so offended and wrongfully treated in the gatherings called churches and the doctrine among what should have been believers that that's why they pull away. I don't know. Some might think so. Let's pray. God, we stand before you and we're here tonight realizing that um, we just want to go forward. We want to learn from our mistakes of the past, our mindset, our attitudes. But most of all, we want to be able to speak to testify, to have what you refer to as the testimony of the saints. To be able to say kindly and compassionately, clearly and powerfully, to be able to tell people about who you are, Jesus. And we know we can't win them to you. Holy Spirit, we know you're the one that convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But we also know that you have invited us to participate in this work of salvation, to bring people to a knowledge of you, to see people take, taken from this miry clay and sinking sand, to see them placed in relationship with you on the solid foundation, the sure rock. And so, Lord, use us however you see fit to accomplish your purposes for your glory, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are and all that you do. Amen. Amen.